Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Now let's jump right into the message, and this is going to be a very, very hard and bumpy transition, okay? But I'm just going to lead in, and we're just going to do this. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt judged by the church? I, I, I thought I'd get a, ooh, like where are you going here, Pastor, right? Have you ever felt judged by the church? Have you ever felt judged by a Christian? Oh, yeah, see, now you're getting riled up. You're like, Pastor Paul's back. Here we go. Right? Have you ever felt just like maybe you've noticed a kind of condescending stare, right? Or you heard a disparaging comment from a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you ever felt your, Christ, or your interaction with another Christian left you feeling shameful or less valuable or looked down upon? Have you ever felt judged by a Christian? Now maybe you're here and you're just exploring Jesus, Right? You're, you would say, Paul, I'm curious. I'm curious about Christianity. I'm curious about Christ. I want you to know I'm so glad you're here. I came to church curious. Before I was ever committed to Jesus, I came curious. And so you coming here curious to me, means, it means a lot to me. And I applaud you. If you've experienced a judgmental posture from a Christian and you're still here exploring Jesus, amen, man. That is great. That is great. I want to unpack today this idea of judgment. I want to unpack, is judgment in the teachings of Jesus? Is judgment a part of Jesus' work? And I think if we can unpack that, then we can see, well, how do we then judge? How do we then make moral appraisals? How do we look at things and say, that's sinful, that's holy, that's good, that's bad? Do we do that? How do we do that? Now, many of you here, you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm committed to Jesus, that's who I am. I'm a Christian. Let me ask you, have you ever struggled with being judgmental? Have you ever struggled with, with like the moral teachings of Jesus and the, kind of the expectations he has over you and your behaviors? And then the compassion that he encourages you to have toward a world that's not yet following Jesus. Like have you ever struggled with being truthful and compassionate at the same time? Having that balance, having that sense of like, yes, I want to speak for moral truth. I want to say what is good. 
I want to say what is right. I want to stand and be courageous to say, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. I want to do that, but at the same time, I want to be compassionate. How can I do that? What we're going to do today is we're going to unpack the idea of judgment in the teachings of Jesus. Judgment in the work of Jesus. And I think when we reflect on that, then we'll understand how, what should our posture be. Because here's what we're going to come to realize, I think, very soon. Is judgment is a part of the Christian story. You can't faithfully tell the Christian story without speaking about judgment. If you remove judgment from the story, you're telling a different story. You're not telling this story. So the question really isn't, should we judge? The question really is, how do we judge? How do we make moral appraisals? How do we determine what's right and wrong? And how do we communicate that? How should we receive the story that has judgment in it? And how should we tell the story that has judgment in it? Okay, so let's jump to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 15. And if you've been with us for a while, we've been in this series called The Writings of Luke, and we're going through different topics, and, and, and we're taking different topics and running them through the Gospel of Luke and the second book that Luke wrote, the book of Acts, which describes the uh, movement of the early church. And we've been walking through those two books and saying, what, how do these themes show up? So we're in a series called The Holy Spirit in the Writings of Luke, and we've kind of visited this story several times. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, the kind of start of his ministry. So we've probably hit this story two or three times already, and we're going we're gonna to hit it again because there's so much packed in here about the Holy Spirit's involvement in the ministry life of Jesus. And John the Baptist is going to say something about Jesus. So if you're not familiar with the scriptures, John the Baptist was kind of like the, um, the band that goes on before the band, right? The opener. That's who John the Baptist was. He kind of set the stage for Jesus, prepared people for the ministry of Jesus. And John the Baptist is going to say something about the ministry life of Jesus. And he's going to say, this is what Jesus came to do. And what he says Jesus is going to do is going to unpack for us how does judgment fit in the teachings of Jesus? How does judgment fit in the work of Jesus? And that will help us understand how we are to judge. So let's see what John says. John chapter 3 Verse 15, this is the very start of Jesus' ministry. John is setting things up. Crowds are coming. They're excited about what God is doing. And so it says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, they were excited. John was talking and they were wondering, is this the Old Testament hero that was promised to us hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, that somebody would come and restore the fortunes of Israel Bring them back to a place of prominence under the blessing of God. And so there's this excitement, this expectation. Is this John? Is John the guy? Is John the hero we've been waiting for? It's like the bat signal has been up for hundreds of thousands of years. Is Batman finally here? Is John the Baptist, is he Batman? Is he the hero we're waiting for? And this is what John says. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the Messiah. You could say, you can insert the English word or concept hero. Is he the hero? Is he the hero we're waiting for? This is what John says. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. 
Right? He was performing this symbol, a symbol of repentance, a symbol of, of cleansing, where people would come and they would go under the water and come back out of the water. And the idea is they were surrendering to God. And the idea was that God was offering them forgiveness because of their confession. They came in a humble posture and said, we need to be cleansed. We need to be renewed. We need forgiveness from God. And so this kind of symbol of washing was, was an idea that they were washed spiritually of their sin. And they were preparing themselves for the movement of God. They were preparing themselves to follow the hero. And John says, I baptize you with water. But look what he says the true hero is going to do. But he who is mightier than I is coming. Whose straps, uh, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now that seems kind of weird to us, you know, as 21st century American readers, we think, why can't you just tie Jesus' shoes? Like, why is that a big deal, right? If you've got kids, I've got four kids, and, and you know how many shoes I've tied? I'm better at tying somebody else's shoes than tying my own shoes, right? Because I've done it so many times. Why is that a big deal? In the first century world, this was a huge deal. Anything related to the feet was seen as a demeaning thing. And so for John to say this, John is really being humble here. He's saying, this guy is so mighty. This guy is so great. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to do the task of untying his sandal. There's an ancient rabbinic saying about this time, near the time of Jesus, that says that, that, a, that a student should do everything for his teacher. Everything a slave would do for a master, except untie his sandal. So that just kind of shows you how demeaning it was to care for somebody's feet like untying a sandal. And John is saying the lowest work, the most demeaning work, I'm not even worthy to do that. What is he showing here? This is a confession of what? Humility. I'm not even worthy. Let me tell you about the true hero. Look what this guy does. I baptize with water, but I'm not special. Somebody is coming. He's mighty. More worthy of honor and praise than I am. And let me tell you what this guy does. What does this hero, this worthy hero do? Verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. With the Holy Spirit and fire. That phrase right there, that's where we're going to camp out. Jesus is going to do a work, a ministry that is to John called a baptism, an immersion. He's going to immerse the world, dunk the world. And he's going to do it with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? That's the phrase that is loaded with the concepts that will help us to understand judgment. But let's take the first one. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to baptize with the Holy Spirit? In order to understand that, you need to understand, so my finger is about right here. That's in the Gospel of Luke. So here is like the New Testament over. That's all the stuff about the ministry life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and everything after. There's so much of the Bible that's the other way. All the stuff before Jesus. We call it the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to summarize all of this in six words. I know you're like, wow. Thank you, Pastor. That'll save me a lot of time. Okay? It kind of will. 
Because in order to understand what he means by to baptize with the Holy Spirit, you have to understand really the whole storyline of the Bible until this point. So I'm going to summarize it in six words. I'm going to summarize about 1,700 years of biblical literature, which actually spans back thousands of years of the story of humanity. Six words. You ready for it? Do it. You can't. I will. Do it, you can't, I will. This is God's statements to his people. First one was, do it. What does that mean? That describes the law of God. God created humanity, and he gave humanity guidelines. If you follow these guidelines, you are going to flourish. I know you. I'm your creator. I know your heart. I know your desires. I know what will allow you to flourish. I know what's best for you. Live under my benevolent wisdom. I will show you the way you can prosper. I will show you everlasting joy. And I will give you the liberty to choose my wisdom. That's do it. That feels good. Well, the bad news comes with the second phrase. You can't. Humanity took this gift of liberty, gift of will. And instead of following God's design, following his guidelines, humanity veered off. And it didn't take long. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So we only get three chapters in and the story gets bad. And what happened is man rebelled. They pushed away. And because they pushed away from God's design, they actually damaged themselves internally. And now they can't obey. Now we can't obey. Sin has so creeped into who we are, it's gone as deep as our hearts. Yes, we still bear the image of God. There's still beauty in all of humanity. But all of humanity is now damaged and beautiful at the same time. That beauty has been distorted. It's been broken. And now we can't do the things that God wants us to do. So he says, do it. And then he looks at us and says, well, now you can't because you've damaged yourself. Now here's where hope comes in. And this is the promise that you see start to build up in the Old Testament prophets. Do it. You can't, I will. You notice how the subject changed there. God was calling humanity, here are the commands, do these. You do these. Oh no, you messed up, you broke my rules, you've damaged yourself, you wounded your heart, sin has creeped in, now you can't do what I've asked you to do. I'll do it. I'll do it. Do it, you can't, I will will. This is the hope of the people of Israel. This is the hope of the Old Testament, that God would do what humanity could not do, that humanity was not in need of assistance. It was not in need of help. It was in need of heart surgery, that they were so unable, so incapable because man wounded himself, crippled himself, damaged himself, that he could not ever achieve the expectations that were on him rightly and justly by its creator. But God steps in and says, I'll do it. Let me show you this. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. The first book of the Bible that I read when I became a follower of Jesus was the book of Ezekiel. Why? Because they were a skate brand. There's an Ezekiel skate brand and I was a skater and I was like, this is my book. And then I read it and I was like, I am so confused. Can I get to the stuff about Jesus? But this is one of the coolest parts and one of the passages that I love the most. There's still some of my favorite chapters in the Bible are in the book of Ezekiel. But I want, you, I want you to see that kind of very simple phrase. And I know it's simple. I didn't include every story. 
But notice how that simple kind of sentence of you do it or do it, you can't, I will. How it's encapsulated in Ezekiel's prophecy about the work that God would do. The work that was needed and necessary. This is Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25. Look how in need we are. Okay, I think the first part we get. If you're familiar with the Bible, I think the first part we get. But Ezekiel is going to go really deep. And in, in going deep, I think we're going to see the true need that we all have. This is what he says in verse 25. This is about forgiveness. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. I don't know if that's a word, but it is in the Bible. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Notice the first part, right? Verse 25 and 26, it's, that's all about forgiveness. But he doesn't go that far. Or he, sorry, he doesn't just go that far. Humanity, you and me, we have a greater need than just forgiveness. Why is that? It's because our sin is not just something outside of us. Our sin is not just something we do. This is going to hurt. It's something we are. It's something we are. It's, it's in our hearts. And again, are we beautiful? Yes. Are we made after the image of God? Yes. But sin devastated that beauty. Broke it and distorted it. When we rebelled against God, it's like we took a rock to the mirror that we were, to the reflection of the glory of God. And we threw that rock and the mirror shattered. Does it still have pieces? Yes. Does it still reflect in some way? Yes. But it doesn't do it rightly and properly. And we can't put the pieces back together again. It's broken. But look what Ezekiel talks about. What will God do? God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cleanse you. I'm going to get all the dirt off the mirror. But then I'm going to put the mirror back together piece by piece through my spirit. Look what he says. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit. This is wild. He didn't say I would just give you a new spirit. Right? The non-physical part of you as a human being. No, he says I'm going to put my. My spirit is going to be in you. That is wild for the people of God at this point to think about. They've seen the spirit of God kind of show up kind of manifest, manifest itself in kind of a visible way. They've seen it in the temple. They saw it on Mount Sinai. They saw those just powerful, holy moments. And now Ezekiel is saying, all of that that used to strike fear in you when God would show up and shake the mountain, when God showed up and filled the temple and the priest couldn't get in, all of that craziness, yeah, that's happening inside of your heart now. You might be like, uh-uh, don't go in me. No, thank you. But God says, this is what has to happen. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. You need my spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice this last part. Does God throw away his law? Does God forget his law? Was God like, yeah, okay, those were some good guidelines, but let's just chuck those. No, he still says to us, do it. Right? He still says to us, obey. 
That's still a very Christian thing for us to hear. Obey my rules. Obey my laws. Obey my guidelines. What he's saying to us here is, I had rules and guidelines for you. You couldn't do them. You've damaged yourself so much. But now I will do the work that will ensure that you can actually obey me. I'll put my law in your heart. And I'll give you a new spirit. And I will change you. See, the Christian life is about forgiveness and transformation. And we sell ourselves short of Christian hope if all we say is Christianity is about receiving forgiveness. Is that true? That is true. But that is not even close to the whole story. It's about forgiveness and transformation. Your sins being forgiven and you becoming, as Paul would say, a new creation. A resurrection work will happen where you were dead at once spiritually and now you are made alive. So when John says that Jesus will baptize with the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. Jesus will come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He will change our hearts, forgive us of our sins. That's beautiful. Now we got to get to the next part. So go to, again to Luke chapter 3 because that's not the only work. John said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does that mean? Okay. Don't think like where you're watching your favorite NBA team, right? And Lillard hits like two threes in a row. And they're like, he's on fire. And then he hits another one. He's on fire. We think of fire sometimes as like empowerment. They're like, man, that is fire. That is amazing. Good job. That's not the idea here. The idea here is not about empowerment. The idea here is about judgment. This is the theme where, this is the the time where judgment comes out. John said, Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. Do for us what we need. Give us the heart surgery we need. Change us and transform us. But he also, in his work, will judge. He will bring fire. And we see this because the next thing that John says, that this is how we should understand fire, because he uses an analogy. Look at the illustration that he uses or the analogy he uses in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, maybe you're like me. And you have no idea what a winnowing fork is. I didn't know what a winnowing fork is. I felt like scuttle, like when the little mermaid brings her the fork. And it's like, that's yeah, a dingle hopper. It's for this, you know. I was like, what's a winnowing fork? I have no idea. So I looked it up. I YouTubed it, okay. I know what a winnowing fork is now thanks to YouTube universe. Okay. What a winnowing fork is, like if you were out and you were harvesting wheat, there would be wheat kind of on the ground. And they would take this fork and they would kind of grab a big pile of it. And what they would do is they would use the wind to separate the grain uh, from the chaff or the wheat from the chaff when they're harvesting grain. So they, they'd take the fork into the grain and they would throw it in the air. And the wheat was heavier, so it would fall to the ground quicker. And the chaff would just be taken by the wind. So on a windy day, this was great for you. So you would just get your fork in there and you'd throw it up and there'd be this division of parts. And the chaff would be used as fuel. That would be something that would be easily burned and then the wheat would be used to make food that's what's being described here so this is what John is saying 
Jesus comes and he baptizes. And his baptism of the world will have two consequences. It will be either an immersion into the Holy Spirit, the renewal work of God, the forgiveness of sins and inward transformation, or it will be judgment. It will be fire, unquenchable fire. Do you see the separation there, the division there? He's saying what will happen is Jesus' ministry is like that winnowing fork. He goes into the grain and he throws it in the air. And there's a division. There's a separation. Jesus uses very similar language later in the Gospel of Luke. We actually see this in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, we see the same idea that Jesus uses this theme of fire to talk about judgment. This is Luke chapter 12, verse, Josh, I forgot what verse it is. Luke chapter 12, verse 39? Well, maybe you should be up here. (laughs) Nailed it. Verse 49. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. (laughs) Right? Got to memorize. I kind of have a little bit of vacation brain. Okay. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. I came to cast fire on the earth. Friendly Jesus. Right? Nobody makes a bumper sticker like that. All right, let me introduce you to my friend Jesus. He's here to bring fire. I want a, 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 like a picture of Jesus and Smokey the Bear just battling it out. You know, Smokey like, no, only you can prevent forest fires. And Jesus like, I actually came to bring fire. That's what I'm here for. Okay, I came to cast fire on the earth. And listen to this phrase. And would that it were already kindled. What do you do with that phrase? Jesus is saying, Judgment needs to happen. And I would kind of like for it to happen now. He feels the weight of injustice. He feels the sadness that sin has broken his world and what it's created. And he wants to right the system, to vindicate the standards of justice, to free the oppressed and to, and to judge the oppressor, to purge his creation of sin and death. He takes sin very seriously. And he is eager to bring forth a purging fire on his creation. But look what he goes on to say. I have a baptism. He's talking about his crucifixion. To be baptized with. And, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Don't you feel like you want to answer that question? Yes. Aren't you? Isn't this Jesus? Right? That's not what he meant, Nixon. That's not what Jesus, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather, what does he say? Division. Think of that winnowing fork. That's what he's talking about here. I came with my winnowing fork in hand. And I'm thrusting it into the grain. And I'm lifting it into the air. And the the heavy pieces of the wheat are falling to the ground. They receive the spirit. They receive transformation. They receive forgiveness. But there are some who are blown away in the wind, the chaff. And that will be burned. Jesus is divisive. Our response to Jesus will cause a division. And when John says that Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, that's what he was talking about. 
Let me show you that this concept isn't strange to John. It's not strange to Jesus. It's actually what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 4. This is a a prophecy. The only time in the book of Isaiah, I think the only time maybe in the Old Testament, especially in the prophet prophet Isaiah, where the work of the Spirit and the sense of fire are put together. And listen to what Isaiah is talking about. He's saying a day is coming when God will purge his people, purge his community, so that they can actually live in a prosperous way. He'll remove their shame. Look at what he talks about. This is Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Let me read this to you. In that day the branch of the Lord, this is talking about the hero, the Messiah, will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of what? Judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assembly a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth of shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. What's God talking about here? I'm going to create this beautiful house, this beautiful home. I think what actually Isaiah is talking about there is it's, it's a... It's a um, uh, a bedroom shelter, okay? It's, a, it's like a marriage bed canopy is what he's talking about here. He's saying, I will dwell intimately with my people again, but after I've cleansed them and I've burned away the sin through judgment, then they will come and be in intimate fellowship with me. This is what Jesus Christ did. He has a ministry that is the baptism of the Spirit and a baptism of fire. That's rescue and judgment at the same time. Now, we have to hear John's message. Later, Luke says, just right after what we read, that that John's message was that of good news. You're like, Paul, that whole fire stuff doesn't sound like good news. No, it is good news. It's good news because, yes, does the Christian story have judgment in it? Absolutely. But is it all about judgment? No. It's about being rescued from judgment. It's about God coming in and doing what we cannot do for ourselves. It's not about God asserting his moral superiority. It's about God rescuing us from our moral inferiority. It's about him coming in and doing what we so desperately need. So that's hope. We can't hear John's message as an indictment, but rather an invitation. Come confess. Come do what I did. To see Jesus and say, I can't even untie that dude's sandal. I just got to humbly go before him because he is the hero. So we cannot take judgment out of the work of Jesus. We can't do that. We can't tell the story of Jesus according to scriptures without judgment. Now we should not only emphasize judgment because we have to see that there's rescue and salvation as well. So what does that mean for us? As followers of Jesus Christ, what does that mean for us? For those of us in the room who are curious about Jesus Christ, what does that mean for us? How should we judge? How should we hear judgment? How should we speak in a way that makes a moral judgment? Here's the big idea for today. So if you only write down one thing, I want you to write this down. And I saved it for the very end. 
As Christians, here's our posture in judgment. The big idea is this. We don't stand in judgment. We kneel in judgment. We don't stand in judgment. We kneel in judgment. We don't stand over people as if we are the authors of the moral code of the universe. We don't stand over people as if we have achieved that moral standard. We stand before the world and make calls of judgment on our knees like this. This is our posture in judgment. We're not the judge in the courtroom of the universe. Who are we? We're the convicts. That's who we are. We've heard all the evidence against us. And we've said, yep, guilty. Nailed it. I've lied. I've lusted. I've longed for things that aren't mine that I should not have. I've used the Lord's name in vain. I've had idols in my heart. I've been bitter and I've been angry. And I'm not listing anybody's sins in this room. I'm listing my own. As Christians, we protect ourselves from being judgmental by first being confessional. We recognize that the truths of Scripture, the moral code of this universe, put in by God, its creator, it's not something authored by us. <laughs> it's not something achieved by us. It's something that we've sinned against. And so when we speak and say, that's wrong, that's evil, we do it from a posture of confession first. Where we are more disgusted by the sin inside of us than the sin outside of us. And if we forget that, that's when we become judgmental. And that's when the world does not want to hear. That's when those not yet following Jesus want to cover their ears. Because they feel a sense of superiority. You come and you do what I've done. Right? You come and you achieve. No, no, no. Where are we? We are kneeling beside people saying, come and kneel with me. Come and kneel with me. Let me show you the one. I can't even untie this dude's sandals. But here is the one who rescues me from the problem that's deep in here. My sickness that's like a tumor on my soul. That's destroying me and killing me. I've, I've heard the voice of the one who says, I can forgive you. I've heard the voice of the one who didn't tell me, do it. He said, I will do it. I will transform you. This is who we are. As Christians, we're, the, we're not the judge in the courtroom, we're the convict. We've pleaded guilty. But we've also heard the judge say, you can be forgiven because somebody else will take your punishment for you. And then on top of that, the judge has put us in a rehab program that has a 100% success rate. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That he will put a new heart in you and remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and write his law on your heart, and you will be able to obey his statutes. Why? Because, not because you're great. You're not great. I'm not great. Are we loved by our creator? Absolutely. Are we beautiful? Absolutely. Does he see his image in us? Absolutely. But he sees it as distorted and broken, and he says, let me change you. Let me put you together. Imagine how much more persuasive our posture would be to the world if they heard us say, that's a sin from our knees. Hey, that's a sin. You know why I know that's a sin? Because I'm a sinner and I sin. Right? How would our communication be? Right? Especially now in our world. Of, of, of just absolute uh, uh, sexual liberties. 
right? No constraints. Run after every impulse in your heart. And they hear the Christian posture. Here's what, here's what they hear when we stand in judgment. When we stand in judgment, they hear this. Heterosexuality is the only way. When we're on our knees, here's what they hear. Holy sexuality is the only way. And I have broken that way. Because we all know heterosexuality, that's not enough. That's not enough. There's a lot of sin that has heterosexual behaviors to it. God calls us to holy sexuality. That's one man, one woman for one lifetime with one heart for each other. That means never lusting after another. Never coveting another man's wife. Never having eyes for another. Right? Never emotionally attaching ourselves to someone that's not our spouse. Never being inappropriate like that. I have not met that standard. So when we go to the outside world and we say, I know, I know. I know in, inside of you there's all these impulses and desires and these hungers and they feel so innately a part of you that if you are to deny them, you are to deny yourself. Well, let me tell you, friend, those innate desires that you have in you, I have those in me too. I have unholy desires in me too and I've had to ask the Lord to crucify them because my heart is desperately wicked and I need to be freed from it. So will you come and kneel with me? Before the one who can change us. Will you join me as a convict in the courtroom of the universe? I'm not your judge. I'm just the one saying, come kneel with me. Come kneel with me. If you don't want to be judgmental as a Christian, the key is be confessional first. Be confessional first. Now, if you're curious about Jesus Christ, I hope you hear. Man, I hope you hear. I, I hope you hear. That we do not stand over you. We stand right beside, we kneel right beside you. With our hands up towards you to say, will you come and kneel with us? Will you come and kneel before the king who can save you, change you, and transform you? Because he's transformed me and turned this heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That is not my achievement. That is not my accolade to wear. That's his trophy. He's changed me. Come and be changed. I pray today that you would not only find forgiveness for your sins, but that you would, you would see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And all it takes is your confession. That's all John was looking for. Humble yourself, confess your sins, and watch him change you. That's the line you need to cross. Not moral improvement. But confession first. And if you confess, he'll transform you. He'll change you. He'll forgive you. And he'll give you new life. And that's what we want for you. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Christ, we just confess before you on our knees that you are our hero. You are our king. You are the the God of the universe. You are the one who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we all stand here or kneel here, sit here as confessors first. First and foremost, I need you, Jesus. I need your righteousness because I have none of my own. I need your forgiveness because I've committed so many sins. 
Holy Spirit, I need your transforming work because I have a heart of stone. Can you change me and give me a heart of flesh? And Father, I hear the assurance of your word over and over again. That if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, I pray today that that people would hear that. I pray for all the followers in this room, all the Christians in this room. Father, I pray that you'd help them change their posture as they speak about the goods and the bads, the evils and the things that are righteous in this world. They would do it from their knees as first confessors. And Father, for those in the room who are not yet following you, I pray that they would hear an assurance of mercy. Come and confess and watch me change you. All I'm waiting is for your surrender. Oh, I pray they would give that today. If that's you in the room right now, if you, if you want to just confess your sins to the Lord, you, you could do it in a prayer like this. And, and these are my words I know, but if they're words that come from your heart, then they'll be meaningful to God. You can just pray to God like this. You could say in the silence of your own heart, you could say these very simple words. I admit. I admit that I'm a sinner. I confess that. I believe that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has provided a way for forgiveness. I believe he died and he rose again. And today I confess him as the Lord of my life. I admit, I believe, and I confess. If you say that to God today, today is the day of your transformation. Today is the day of becoming a Christian, of crossing that line of starting to follow Jesus. And today is a great day. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.